You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. The Prime Minister will set out plans for the next stage of England's roadmap for lifting restrictions this afternoon. So-called Freedom Day on the 19th of July at 5pm. It's expected that Boris Johnson will urge Britons to exercise judgment to protect themselves from COVID-19 as he announces decisions about the use of face masks, COVID certificates, care home visits and work from home guidance. Well, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid's going to update MPs as well on COVID-19 with a statement at 5pm as well, in fact, to coincide with the press conference from Downing Street. Although nearly 64% of UK adults have now had two doses of a vaccine, the easing of lockdown measures comes despite a very rapid rise in virus cases. More than 20,000 new infections have been reported on each of the last seven days. Well, joining us now is Sarah Olney, MP for Richmond Park, Liberal Democrat and spokesperson for Transport and for Business and Industrial Strategy. Sarah, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Hello, good morning. Nice to be here. First of all, how wise do you think it is to open up as the government seems to be planning for on the 19th of July? Um, It makes me quite nervous, to be honest. We're still seeing uh, rapidly climbing uh, infection rates. Uh, Obviously, that's down now to the new Delta variant. Um, We can see, obviously, that the amazing vaccine rollout, uh, which has, you know, obviously just been uh, incredible. And thanks to so many dedicated and hardworking NHS staff, we can see that's having an impact. We can see that, obviously, the relationship between cases and hospitalizations and deaths uh, has, has, you know, it has been broken um, and that the hospitalizations and deaths is not going up anywhere as fast as we've seen it in previous waves. But it still makes me feel very nervous. In London, for example, uh, where my seat is, we're still seeing quite low rates of vaccination. Um, you know, I think we've only had something like 40% of Londoners have had both doses. So to be opening up before we get those vaccination rates uh, a little bit higher makes me feel very nervous. Um, And we don't know what the impact of long COVID is going to be for those who've been unvaccinated and don't have, um, uh, you you know, don't have protection against that. And I think it just makes me feel very nervous. It appears to be primarily a political decision rather than uh, one that's actually being driven by the data. So although it's marvellous that we're not seeing the rates of hospitalisation, and that's obviously a very positive thing, I'm still very nervous. Well, I I take on board your nervousness, but I suppose the point that the government would say is that if, as you say it has, that link between cases and deaths and hospital admissions has been broken, 
isn't there a point where you just say, well, we have to get used to uh, living with this virus. We just have to work our way around it, take whatever small precautions we personally feel are right and get on with continuing with the economy and, and, and bringing children back into schools and doing all the 101 other things we want to do. Um, I think that's probably right, but I'm just not, as I say, with vaccination rates still very low in the capital, I'm just not absolutely convinced that we've reached that point yet. Although, as I say, it is very encouraging to see how how well the vaccine rollout is going. Uh, I personally would just like to see, I would just personally would like to see that we start, we don't get to that point until we start seeing infections going down again. Um, But that's the thing that makes me nervous, that that, that infections are still going up at a very, you know, fast rate. Mm. Sarah, will you still be wearing a face mask, the face mask then, do you think, in public places? Yes, I will, yes. Because I think the important thing is it's not about you know me taking responsibility for myself. It's about me taking responsibility for the people around me. And if I've contracted COVID and supposing it's a- asymptomatic and I don't know yet and I haven't yet had time to take a test, then if I'm not wearing a mask, I increase the risk that I will be spreading that round to other people. So, yes, I very much will be continuing to wear a mask in shops and in, on public transport until such a time as case rates are really coming back down again. What about social distancing? Again, if the government relieves on that, would you feel still obliged not to, I don't know, be in a crowded pub or be at a big public venue for something, a football match or something like that? Would you still feel obliged not to do that? I think, again, you know, uh, there will be situations where there are crowds and where, you, you know, you, you, you need to be part of that crowd for whatever reason. But wherever I can avoid it, I think I will. And I will certainly be, you know, trying at any point that I can to maintain some space between myself and other people. Hmm. How quickly um, is the economy recovering? In your constituency, how fast are things returning to normal in a sort of economic sense? It's quite patchy. So in my constituency, we have a lot of hospitality. We also have a lot of uh, travel businesses, and those have been really quite profoundly impacted. And travel is is going to be problematic for quite some time yet, not least because obviously other countries have imposed restrictions on us because of our rapidly climbing infection rates. They're trying to keep us away, uh, and that's going to have a massive impact on travel companies for some time to come. And hospitality industries finding it difficult to reopen to capacity, not just because of social distancing, but because of the difficulty in recruiting staff. So they're struggling um, a little bit. And obviously, a lot of our creative industries also, because of uh, social distancing, also struggling to reopen. So certainly our retailers, um, our town centres have been having, you know, are welcoming people back and um, making quite good sales, as I understand it. But but taking all that into account, then it seems to me, I mean, you're the spokesperson for business and industrial strategy as well. Uh, there might be people who come to you and say, well, hang on a second. Everything you've talked about caution and, and being very careful and being concerned and wearing a face mask and social distancing all tends against the kind of economic recovery we need to get the country back together again, give young people the chance of getting jobs, all these kind of things. You know, you, you have to balance the risks. Yeah, absolutely. But as I say, you know, cases are still going up very, very quickly. And that's what's stopping us traveling abroad. And, you know, it's not until we can travel abroad until we have foreign visitors coming here again, that London in particular can really get up and running. So it's really it's it's about when you talk about a balance of the risk, it's also about a balance of approaches. We've really got to get the increase in cases under control as much as anything else. How is it going on to sort of other issues away from the economics and, and reopening? How are things going um, with the party itself? Chesham and Amersham, um, obviously the Liberal Democrats did well, didn't really get anywhere in Batley and Spen, though. That was really a 
kind of a face-off between Labour and Conservatives. What does it show about the Liberal Democrats and prospects outside of seats in the sort of southeast, south blue wall areas uh, of England? Um, I mean, we're obviously extremely pleased about Cheshire and Amersham. I think the result there was actually way beyond what we expected in terms uh, in terms of the, the majority that Sarah Green achieved, and we're really, really pleased about that. But it's part of the trend that we've seen um, throughout the local elections as well, where we were making advances in seats right across the southeast. Um, and even last Thursday, we won a very significant council by-election in uh, in Isha and Walton, which is Dominic Rob's seat. So, you know, we've been making progress in those kinds of seats for a little while. I mean, you're right about uh, Batley and Spen. We're pleased about the, um, about the, the, the campaign that we ran there. Um, but I think often in first-past-the-post elections, you tend to find that it becomes a bit of a two-horse race. And certainly in Batley and Spen, it was between Labour and the Conservatives. So that was, that was a more difficult one for us. But we have lots of, um, lots of prospects up in the Midlands and across the north and, you know, all over the country. We're working hard, uh, you know, yeah. for people right across the country and local authorities right across the country. Uh, and we'll continue to do so. But, but, Sarah, you say you've got prospects there. But the fact is, as you've pretty much admitted there, south, southeast is where the strength is. You as a party, to be a national party have to reach out beyond perhaps the people you'd expect to be disaffected Tories as much as anything in the South. Uh, you've got to reach people in other parts of the country. You need a different message as a party, don't you? Well, I think we've made quite a lot of progress as it is, to be honest. But, I mean, I think you're right. But, I mean, you know, our message is very much about uh, you know, inclusion, diversity, and, and, you know, reaching out to people who feel excluded from from the way that politics is going at the moment. And that's definitely a message we could be taking to many parts of the country and certainly not just the South and the Southeast. Hmm. OK. Uh, well, you mentioned diversity there. On that point, what do you think of this idea of locum MPs? Um, one um, pregnant MP in Parliament is campaigning for that, uh, Stella Creasy. What's your view? Um, I think that's, it's, a, it's an idea that we need uh, to look at. I mean, in terms of increasing, I think there's an urgent need to increase the diversity of MPs and to increase the opportunity for more people from different backgrounds to consider standing for MPs. And there's no doubt that the hours and the requirements is, is definitely a barrier to um, you know, increasing participation. Um, I haven't looked at the, um, the proposal for locum MPs in detail, mm. and I think there is still... You know, we all of us have a personal responsibility. We've all been elected personally, whichever uh, party we've stood for. But certainly it seems to me that every, anybody, you know, not just uh, not just pregnant women, but any uh, MP could have periods where they need to be. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking as well, there's been a couple of MPs who've uh, had to take time out for cancer treatment, for example. And of course, it's unacceptable that their uh, um, uh, constituents should be unrepresented in that time. So um, any, I think... Um, opportunities and we've we've you know we've had to completely revolutionize the way we do parliament in the last year so you know alternative approaches are possible and we should certainly be thinking about that even perhaps uh, a reshaking briefly of the whole edifice i mean we you know people working away working from home of course as they've had to many offices are considering that for the longer term perhaps could be the case of mps well, you know, we do have an urgent issue to address about the fact that the Houses of Parliament are not in good shape uh, as a building. And uh, we do need to think urgently and quickly about how we're going to carry out the work that are urgently needed. Um, and I, I think you're right that, you know, working from home is, is part of the solution. But there is also, I think, 
there will always be a requirement from MPs from different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different parties to be able to come together and, and talk to each other. That's what the word parliament means, after all. So absolutely, we need to be together as much as we possibly can. But certainly there are lots of alternative approaches that we should be trialling. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look, though, at what else is making news in the world of politics. And, Caroline, there's moves to try to change the way people can deal with buildings that may not be wholly safe. Yeah, absolutely. This after the Grenfell Tower disaster, the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, is going to unveil a new building safety bill on Monday, which will include a new regulator with the power to prosecute property developers that do not meet safety standards. The new regime is meant to avoid a repeat of the Grenfell Tower blaze, which killed 72 people in 2017. In a statement, Jenrick said that the bill will ensure high standards of safety for people's homes and in particular for high-rise buildings, although, Roger, perhaps the question mark may be around, you know, why existing rules are not tough enough. Indeed. That'll be widely debated, I'm sure. Let's talk about young people in the UK who are emerging from the virus crisis blighted by poor mental health and worried about their financial future. The Resolution Foundation says one in four people aged 18 to 24 are afraid that poor mental health will affect their ability to find a job in the future. And in a separate report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the share of 19 to 24-year-olds who are not working at all has jumped by 25% during the pandemic. Those who are in work are at greater risk from the end of the furlough. Mm, So that's the risk to young people. Meanwhile, this risk to perhaps older people. The Financial Conduct Authority is going to regulate prepaid funeral plan providers to introduce high standards in the funeral plans market and require firms to ensure that plans are sold fairly and provide value for money. The FCA will be banning cold calling and funeral instalment plans that don't guarantee a funeral. Plus, there'll be fitness to operate checks for uh, the companies behind these plans. Yeah, if they don't guarantee a funeral, well, what was the point of the whole thing in the first place? Um, right, let's talk more about the government's plans for the reopening of England's economy. This is due to happen on the 19th. There are lots of arguments around that. The government, after all, has to acknowledge that over 20,000 new cases a day are still happening here in the UK. Joining us now is UCL Global Health Lecturer and Advisor Oksana Pisik. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, Oksana. Let me ask you, what advice would you give ministers on this at the moment? If they said to you, should we open, should we cut off all regulations effectively on July the 19th, what would you say? I would say let's take a long-term view, particularly thinking about winter ahead. So um, often this is pitted as a a lockdown versus uh, opening up uh, the economy versus health is a zero-sum game. But really, if we get a good handle on, let's say, ventilation, uh, other measures, we still had, there was a recent report showing that the test and trace system, even 18 months in, is not fit for purpose. I'd look at all of this much more holistically, ensure that we have that robust area as we build up our vaccine wall. We're nowhere near a new herd immunity threshold. It's not just a magic barrier you go through. We need to get through all those younger people um, that don't have uh, either have one dose or none at all 
in order to have wider protection. So I'd say looking at ensuring that particularly when we're talking about travel, mass events, uh, allowing these to go forward, but with uh, measures. I think a free-for-all at this stage will spell trouble down the line. Well, I mean, nearly 64% of adults in the UK have had two doses of the vaccine. And and you say that we're still not uh, anywhere close to sort of resolving it. Absolutely. And that figure is looking at adults. But we need to also think about uh, other areas, including children. We know schools are becoming um, places of the most common places of outbreak. uh, And there's also complications around long COVID to consider as well. So I would say that, uh, you know, we need to be, especially due to Delta, you know, this has a uh, evolutionary advantage in terms of transmission, in terms of hospitalization, in terms of its long-term impacts. So I think that we should also be looking at getting younger people protected um, and getting it up to, you know, high 80s. It's literally the more the merrier when it comes to vaccination. Okay, so you're saying not quite yet. There are these various things. So if not now, then when? Is there a moment you can say, you can draw a line and say, when we reach this point, that is when opening can happen? Well, I'd say we, we are open. We currently, you there are, apart from things like uh, nightclubs, etc., there, there is ability to travel, all the other... Institu- what I would say is that we want to get through... Um, probably need another month and a half to catch up with a vaccine uh, rollout, even w- disregarding um, children in this scenario, in this equation, to then continue over this period uh, going into, again, protecting ourselves for the winter by introducing things like ensuring we have clean air, just as we have clean water. We just need to normalize that as a, as a standard public health measure in offices and schools and, and invest in that um, to, to protect our health and the NHS. Because at this rate, uh, we are going to probably, uh, based on projections uh, presented by Independent Stage, reach 100,000 cases per day by Freedom Day, July 19th. And if we calculate a 3% hospitalization rate, that's about 3,000 COVID admissions per day. Even though we see that uh, that link has weakened, uh, I mean, it's not totally been broken. And I think we, it would be wise, particularly with the flu season in the, in the winter, to uh, prepare for that. Oksana, I understand that you're very focused on ventilation and just how important that is. The World Health Organization is too. But isn't there just, a, to my mind, a complete disconnect between the sort of... Um, the, the health um, experts such as yourself, the view on ventilation and, for example, I haven't heard of a single business company, organisation anywhere in the UK that's been punished for poor ventilation indoors, for example. I mean, there's a real disconnect here between what's needed and what's really happening on the ground. Yes, and we've heard the phrase, uh, you know, living with the virus. Uh, we need to learn to live uh, with COVID-19. And if we're going to learn how to live with it, then we need to put that pressure on businesses and our places of work um, to make those spaces healthy in light of what we know about Delta. It's a multi-system disease. It affects almost every organ in the body. And a report in The Lancet shows that one in three adults went on to have, uh, who were hospitalized, went on to have um, a neurological and psychological diagnosis down, down the line. So I think it is at this stage, there is that disconnect is real, and this is why we need to ensure that we are not allowing politicians to um, just skate over this. this. This is an absolutely next frontier for public health. Just as we you know, demand clean water in our taps, we need clean air, 
good ventilation, and that's going to cost money. So I'm not surprised that it's um, perhaps not uh, discussed widely enough uh, amongst businesses and politicians. Oksana, just drilling into the specifics in this. Now, politicians you were referring to there, some have said, oh, well, we end compulsory social distancing, we end compulsory masks. Some have said they will take off their masks at that point. Do those things specifically have a big effect? Would, would it increase the number of cases you were talking about? Well, uh, certainly we know that uh, COVID-19 is airborne, and so it lingers in the air. And there was a long debate about this previously about, you know, what, whether it was just in those heavy respiratory particles. And the WHO did get it wrong at the beginning. But now that we're 18 months in, we, we, we do have this data. So I'd say absolutely there is an impact. Uh, obviously, the higher grade, the medical mass, the more protection you are going to get. Uh, but again, evidence coming out of Australia shows that due to, again, the um, growth advantage of Delta, we see that even you don't have to be in a stand with cheering and screaming and people expelling particles. Um, you can uh, pass by each other in, in quite a normal way and still be impacted. So I think, again, even just having these high cases, the UK is mm-hmm. overtaking the rest of Europe when we look at the growth. Um, we should be looking at ensuring that we're protecting for the next variant as well. And, and I think that's been discussed over and over again. Um, but we don't want to have... Uh, Delta, there could be something that is more vaccine-resistant. Right now we have good uh, level of protection. You have two doses, about yeah. 94% from hospitalization, and, and that's, that, that's encouraging. But that doesn't mean that we have immunity from the next one around the corner. The higher the number of the cases, the more that they grow, the more likely that that's supposed to, that could happen. So what happens then in winter? I mean, do we end up, you know, yet again, another year where we reopen in summer? And I mean, the promise from, from the government or the, the drive, the messaging is that, that this is a one-way road, you know, that we're coming out of restrictions and that's it. What do you think about this winter? Well, I, I think there's a bit of contradiction in, in some of the messaging coming out of number 10. We certainly have uh, heard uh, that uh, this is going to be the final date, but previously we heard data not dates, and, and, and Boris Johnson also refused to rule out a future uh, lockdown in winter. I think no one wants that to occur, and lockdowns are a failure of public health strategy. It means countries have acted too late and not taken these other measures uh, to keep cases low enough. Um, so in this instance, I would say that uh, we we have had a light flu season last year. That's not guaranteed now. Um, and again, I would be concerned that uh, at, at this rate, if we do the free-for-all, we're going to put extra pressure on the system instead of, and, and this isn't introducing more restrictions. It's just adding a a layer of safety in some of the activities that we do that are higher risk that I think we need to uh, ensure are in place until uh, we get the cases down to to a more acceptable level. So very briefly, uh, we can avoid another winter lockdown, but we just have to hang on that little bit longer. That's in essence is what you're saying. Yes, the vaccines are working. I mean, there is an, you know, there is end in sight here. I I would just say that, um, the NHS has been under a lot of pressure over the last mm-hmm. 18 months in terms of surges. We have to also think about um, the staff burnout level and the possibility for uh, other respiratory viruses to, uh, once they enter the mix at, at higher levels, what that could do, particularly as we know um, that uh, for 
uh, the, the impact of one million people living with long COVID, what that might, what that burden might look like. We don't know that yet. Yeah. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.